Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I am Matt Stickersale Garasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana, no longer banned from my workplace. Oh, con- congrats on that. For COVID related reasons. Yeah, thank yeah. you. For not having COVID reasons, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two or three or four. This week, we are finally going to be tackling the debate between Westernizers and Slavophiles by reading Ivan Turgenev's Fathers and Children. But before we get into that, Matt, what are you drinking today? I am drinking some cheap red wine that I bought from Target the other day. Uh, I guess... Yeah, the other day. All, 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 all sense of time is completely lost on me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I feel that. What are you drinking? I am, I'm bringing in, this isn't a small independent brewery, but um, I'm drinking a peanut butter milk stout from Bilching Beaver Brewery. It's one of my favorite uh, beers, and I'm, I'm very glad to have it on this day to help me get through uh, a, a debate that has been happening for hundreds of years. Yep. And yep. I am, certainly my undergraduate education touched upon it, but um certainly it is a bit humbling to approach a debate which has been happening since um before your you know a great-grandfather or great-grandmother were even stars in the eyes of their parents yeah it's fun to be able to kind of toss your hat in the ring and do a sloppy job summarizing it but that's what we're here to do today (laughs) (laughs) that's because we're here for you to give you a half-remembered summary of what is going on in this era but before we get into half-remembered summaries, I feel like I must announce why I am sticker sale today. Yes, please do. And that is because we have been working super, super hard. We have commissioned an artist to do some work for our podcast that we have then turned into stickers. So if you're interested in something like that, you can check it out on our shop on our website, tipsytolstoy.com shop. Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff up, up there. Uh, the main one that we have, it's a... Tolstoy giving you that big thumbs up while he's drinking a beer. We got a sad Dostoevsky holding a beer wine bottle. And we also have the drunk meter. So on a scale from one to Yeltsin, you could have uh, a sticker to to represent that. I know that Tolstoy is our flagship sticker, and I really do like it. But I've got like a special love for the one to Yeltsin meter. It's just such a good photo of Yeltsin that uh, we had and the artist rendered very wonderfully. So Yes. <laughs> Uh, she really captured the chaos of everything. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you should definitely go check that out because they're very fun to look at. I really enjoyed it. I'm really looking forward to being able to put it on things around my house and annoying all my roommates with them. Absolutely. And Cameron got locked out of our account every time he had to communicate with the artist. So he put in a lot of work on his end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really beginning to think that the application which deletes all of my cookies and data every time I close my tabs is not worth it. No, I think it's fine. <laughs> I I don't even use a VPN, so it's just like I'm handing it over to the NSA and then deleting it from my computer, so it's really not doing much, but whatever. Yeah, I would hate if the NSA stole our stickers. That'd be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first our podcast, then our stickers. <laughs> well, let's hope that doesn't happen quite yet, at least not before we get into a little background info. Yeah, absolutely. Today we're talking about fathers and children, and one of the main things to know about this novel is it takes place in 1851, and if that date means nothing to you, that's okay, it doesn't for most people. But there are a few important reasons that uh, it takes place in this era. First of all, this is only about three years after the series of revolutions that swept Europe in 1848, and that happened in like 
more nations that we have time to recount here. But basically, that was an upsurge of liberal uh, and even somewhat socialist sentiment that kind of overthrew a lot of governments or at least influenced a lot of governments throughout Europe and formed the basis of the modern nation state. Or really, this was like kind of the start of the modern nation state as we could currently understand it. Uh, when you start having governments transitioning to this sort of style of, of governance, which we recognize as democracy today. So this is an idea that's that's going all throughout Europe. And of course, very importantly, in France. And France was a huge influence on Russia through this time period. And one of the major things that has been imported as a kind of a fashionable ideology is liberalism. And liberalism is something that you've heard of all your life. If you're in political science, you might understand what I mean. But if you're not, let me walk it back a few steps. Liberalism, as we often understand it, stands in contrast to the idea of conservatism. And that's not really what this sense of liberalism means. Liberalism and conservatism are kind of sub-ideologies of what we might recognize more broadly as a the like liberalism or like kind of a Western ideology, which has kind of come out of the primarily it came out of the Enlightenment era philosophy and kind of a rejection of uh, divine right of kings and wanting to base ideas on reason and rationality and being able to self-generate those rational thoughts rather than depending on religious reasoning all the time. Now that also coincided with a sort of attempt to rationalize the world and understand a lot of things, primarily economies. So you have probably heard of Adam Smith. Adam Smith and many similar economists of their time, or what would come to be known as economists, were really trying to understand the effects of the Industrial Revolution and the process of specialization and centralizing production and all of those sorts of things, which kind of created a fundamentally new economy across the world. And that like basic tie together of the philosophy of rationalism and the desire to reject you know, divine right rule and embrace what we would now recognize as democracy tied together with the study of economics has kind of created a general ideology which uh, embraces rationality and what would come to be known as capitalism. So generally you're going to find like liberal and conservatism, although they may disagree in many policy points, tend to have agreements on like the right to private property or you know, civil rights or certain forms of civil rights, at least. And that's the basic agreement there, although there's obviously many, many people individually under those subheadings who go in very different directions. And that stands in contrast to ideologies like socialism, which, although it also has many subsections, rejects many of the basic tenets of liberalism, such as, and this is really important here, private property. Private property not meaning any property that exists that someone has, but in this case, like property which someone possesses, which is not of immediate use to them. Like in this case, uh, a factory being an example of private property, but one's laptop or, you know, one's uh, fridge being an example of personal property. So like that's kind of where you start to see how ideologies actually divide. Now, this is important because, of course, this ideology of liberalism is very in vogue in France at the time. And France being a huge influence on Russia and also having fought with Russia relatively recently. Of course, Napoleon had invaded Russia around 1812. So there was obviously a bit of conflict, but at this time, it was in high society, in the czarist court, you kind of wanted to speak French and be familiar with French philosophies. And that was the sign that you were an educated person if you could uh, refer to some French thinker and throw in one badly said French phrase. And that kind of sets up the, the liberals of this era who want to be more like Western Europe. And you could roughly categorize them as what you might call a westernizer, uh, who is characterized by engaging with Western thought, even though somewhat limited, as in we see in this book, many Westernizers or liberals also support things which are inherently illiberal, such as <laughs> the czar um, <laughs> or the concept of serfdom, which is the idea that a property owner can own the people on that land. 
So you run into some inherent contradictions there, but that certainly has never stopped anyone. Uh, and then you also have Slavophiles, who are a reactionary force to the Westernizers, who more so are trying to defend this idea of Russianness and like, you know, what are things or what things are right for Russia. And of course, we also have other groups, as we'll get into in this book. This is important because this influence went all the way up to the Tsar himself at the time, Alexander II, who in 1861 would go on to free the serfs, uh, make that an illegal practice in Russia or the Russian Empire, and, you know, engage in many other reforms, even kind of towing the line with a sort of liberalism before he was, before an attempted assassination attempt made him much more reactionary, and um, so on and such forth. But that's the basic background, historically, you're going to need to know going into this book. Yeah, the background is really helpful to kind of understand the major ideological undercurrents that are flowing throughout the novel. And now for a summary. So the novel opens with a university student, Arkady, going home to visit his dad, Nikolai. Arkady is bringing home his university friend, Bazarov, somebody that he is almost a an ideological disciple of. Bazarov is a self-proclaimed nihilist, meaning that he claims to believe in nothing, that he believes that the best approach to politics and life is to just deny the usefulness or the anythingness of any institution that you can name. And this is, of course, going to set the tone for the book and ruffle a few feathers <laughs> along the way as we get to see how Bazarov and Arkady, his disciple or his student of sorts, kind of interact with the world and society around them. So, Arkady's dad, Nikolai, is, like I said, living with his brother, Pavel, on the estate. Nikolai is somewhere in the middle, somewhat of a moderate. He's tried to do things such as uh, he's tried to transfer land to his peasants. He's tried to do things that are would generally be considered liberal by conservatives, but he doesn't go far enough. He still does things that Bazarov loves to ridicule, such as play the cello and appreciate music and nature. In addition to Nikolai, Pavel Petrovich, his brother, also has some issues with Bazarov. Pavel is really uh, an interesting character, probably the funniest contrast to Bazarov. Pavel is the one who really gets into it with him on every occasion and creates just so much tension uh, in the household, which we'll get to in a little bit. There's also this kind of general thing going on in the background, which is that uh, Arkady's dad, Nikolai, his wife has passed away now for, has been passed away for several years, and he started sleeping with Fenichka, a peasant and servant in the household, and he had a son with her. So there's the interesting dynamic where Arkady has to come home to a home that was once familiar and comfortable to him and has now changed in a lot of ways. Not only has the estate changed, but he is kind of changed as well. Uh, we'll see later on in most of his arguments. He's not very good or self-assured in his arguing, but he does it nonetheless. So Arkady and Bazarov are at the estate for quite some time, and it's it's not probably the most enjoyable for anybody there. The the young people, Fenichka and some of the other people that live on the estate that are younger, enjoy their presence more than Nikolai and Pavel. And you start to see that this is a sort of generational thing. And it's something that is unfortunate because Nikolai was kind of saying, wow, I was really looking forward to getting to know my son better as an adult. And he feels like there is a gap growing between them that cannot be reconciled. 
And this all kind of comes together on one of their last evenings in the household when Pavel and Bazarov really start to get into it about what is nihilism, what do you believe? And it comes with the famous quote when Bazarov says that he only believes that their job is to destroy and raise everything to the ground. And Pavel says, but no, you need to build as well. And Bazarov says, no, building is not our job. And that kind of gets to what Bazarov believes probably better than any of his other quotes. So after this heated argument, Bazarov encourages Arkady to take up a standing invitation that they have with one of Arkady's relations or distant family members in the city or the town that's closest to them. And they go down and they make some acquaintances, nobody that they're really particularly interested in. But they find out that the governor is throwing a ball and they decide to go. At this ball, they meet this local woman that they have heard about. They haven't heard great things about her. Her last name, how she's referred to, is Adinsova. And she's at this ball and she really catches the eye of both Bazarov and Arkady. Arkady does not really turn her head very much. He makes some failed attempts at flirting with her, but kind of is never able to break through the exterior. He always says that he felt like she looked at him kind of like like an older sister looks at uh, her brother. Nothing, nothing romantic. There's no desire there. However, Bazarov does catch her attention a little bit, and eventually she invites them to come stay with her on her estate. And they stay there for quite a long time, actually. Uh, Bazarov gradually developing feelings for Adinsova, and Arkady is gradually developing feelings for her younger sister, Katya. This sets up the uh, more internal drama, I suppose, whereas in the first part that we had just discussed, there was a lot of arguing between generations and laying out what one actually believes. Whereas in this part with Adinsova and Bazarov, who are probably the main dynamic, you start to see that Bazarov is a bit of a hypocrite, I would say. He really goes on to say how he doesn't believe in love, that you should just have sex, and if you're not able to have sex, then you should just move on. But he finds himself unable to move on because he is just so interested in Adinsova for a lot of a lot of reasons. Not only is she pretty but she is interesting, and he enjoys conversing with her. That's kind of where we leave off on where we decided to end, which is the end of part 17. There is a, a brief moment where it almost looks like Bazarov and Adinsova are going to sleep together, but Bazarov really awkwardly shakes her hand and leaves the room and decides <laughs> to go back to his father's estate. So that is a quick summary of part one that we read, chapters one through 17. Uh, Cameron, what did, what did you think about this? You haven't read Father's Intelligence before, right? I have not. This is my first time through. And so far, I'm having a great time. I think this may be a little bit early to proclaim this, and I am prone to uh, over-proclaiming things. But I think this might be one of my favorite things that we've read so far. Really? Uh, I have... I mean, I, I've, in my undergraduate years, this was these philosophies that they're kind of indirectly debating here, a lot of what I dealt with. So it's actually a lot of fun to see them in conversation, uh, or yes. even sometimes the way that they're not actually in conversation. There's a point when, before Bazarov and Arkady have met Adinsova, they have come to this new town, and they see an old kind of disciple of Bazarov's, uh, Sitnikov, and he takes them to a friend of his, Kuchina, and they all have a discussion of, you know, all the prominent academics and intellectuals of their day. And they're really doing no more than name dropping everyone. They'll say like one person at a time, name drop someone they know. 
and like half state an idea that person's had before someone else interrupts to do the same thing and then that lasts for hours as they just get incredibly drunk which uh as someone who spent a lot of time with political science majors that resonated really really <laughs> deeply with me uh <laughs> as someone who's read a lot of academic articles it reminds me of when academics just put in footnotes and uh names just to show how many people that they're aware of <laughs> yeah 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 and i'm just i'm really enjoying the characterization of everyone it's it's complex no one's straightforward you agree with someone one second and then they say a logical extension of their idea of their ideas the next and you realize that and you got to walk some things back and i don't know it's fun i really enjoy the back and forth that we're having here i think that's interesting and it's probably a testament to why people still read this novel but at the time that it came out, people would not have agreed with you. Uh, the mm. Russian society did not like this when it came out because both of the generations felt that Turgenev did a bad job characterizing them and that he made caricatures out of them and everybody was too simple and it didn't get into the nuance of it. And I don't know if that's really true or not, but uh, we still read it today, so I'm inclined to think that it's, you know worth reading <laughs> i think it's interesting i mean i could definitely understand how you think it's a caricature bizarroff is someone who initially when he starts talking like hey i'm in full agreement and then he just be kind of descends to, into a bit of a caricature but not so much of a caricature that i don't recognize him in people i've known in my real life sure so yeah everyone every character has their own set of flaws and they all have some ideas that they put forth which i don't know where turgenev lands on it but you could easily agree with someone and also think they're Personally, they're kind of reprehensible, which is kind of the case in this book. But is there anything that kind of, as we go into it right now, that immediately sticks out to you about this? Yeah, I would say that there are two main points to the first half of the book that we've read so far. And the first one is that long argument that Pavel Petrovich has with Bazarov. And the other one is the relationship between Adinsova and Bazarov. Bazarov emerging as the character that is the one that you want to pay the most attention to even though it kind of seems like Arkady's going to be the protagonist he sort of fades into the background really mm -hmm. yeah uh, but we could start with that first conversation if you'd like yeah absolutely I, I that was something that I kind of went over a few times just because I really wanted to to catch yeah. it um, of course as you said it really begins as a discussion of Bazarov's nihilism because the the older gentleman of the pair are kind of like, what is nihilism? What does this mean? This is a new phrase. It's there. They have just been introduced to this idea. Uh, when initially Arkady introduces Bazarov as a nihilist, um, Pavel is like, well, back in my day, we used to have principles, not this, you know, <laughs> not this rampant denouncement of everything. And then when they finally get into it, Pavel really pushes him on that and says, okay, well, you denounce everything. What do you like? Is there anything that you find of value? And Bazarov says, no, not your art, you know, nothing. There is, there's basically just, there's just science. And even then, we can't rely on scientific authority, so we kind of have to do it ourselves. And um, at this, early in the conversation, or even maybe in the former conversation, uh, Pavel kind of acerbically notes that he, Bazarov, doesn't believe in principles, but he does believe in frogs, because Bazarov <laughs> has been hunting the estate for frogs to dissect. And I think it's very interesting in the way that we kind of have this back and forth because Bazarov makes some very good points about Pavel. Pavel, despite being, as it's mentioned, kind of a fashionably liberal, a bit of a dandy, uh, someone who's engaged in a lot of social life, he still holds very traditional views despite reading liberal magazines. He's very in favor of the aristocracy, so much so that he defends the institution of the aristocracy as a necessary background to Bazarov. 
as like the backbone of Russian society. And then Bazarov says, you know, you say this is necessary, but if you really want to do the things you say you want, it would be better if you uncrossed your arms and went and did something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really calls him out for just sitting on his estate, which it does mention that he has not left in, I think, five years now. Something like that, and yeah. It does, doesn't really do very much. Yeah, so I mean, that's like, I guess it's kind of this weird back and forth where Pavel still is trying to get Bazarov to like, hey, why don't you pay attention to poets or, you know, these things. And Bazarov criticizes him from every, you know, everywhere he goes. He says, well, we shouldn't be paying attention to poets. They're kind of phonies. Not that I'm saying that Bazarov is like Holden Caulfield, but it does come off a little bit in this conversation. <laughs> There's no reason to use your foreign words. He dismisses Pavel on the basis of using foreign words, mostly French ones or certain ideas, which he calls foreign. So he kind of almost has this Slavophilic tendency, but he's not a Slavophile. When Bazarov asks Pavel to put forth institutions which he thinks are good, Pavel puts forth the peasant communes, a holy Russian thing, or, you know, the Russian family. And Bazarov says, well, look outside. Your estate is being run by way of peasant commune, and it's doing terribly. Or the Russian family, haven't you heard in some areas they allow father-in-laws to have sex with their daughter-in-laws? That's a right they have. So much for your family. I, I think it's kind of funny because there is a, a point where before they get to defining the institutions individually they actually have some level of agreement they just the, their issue is really they don't see eye to eye on how to go forward because mm -hmm. Bazarov says how he doesn't like how you see now in the 1850s now that civil servants take bribes there's no roads commerce no such thing as true justice and Pavel says, oh, actually, yeah, I do agree with what you're denouncing. And so to me, it was interesting that they actually do have this. A, they do have a set of common things that they would like to work towards. There's just such a big gap on how they actually should go forward. Right. In that Pavel has this idea of, well, we need to use this idea of liberalism in, in concert with traditional institutions, our czar, our aristocracy, our peasant governance, and then to counter him, Bazarov says, no, we'll just tear it all down. <laughs> and it's not my business to figure out what we do next. There's this point where Bazarov says that the problem is not the actual people. The problem is the fact that the institutions that exist are corrupting people. And so the reason that he really wants to burn things down is because he thinks that if you have people without corrupting institutions, then you actually will be okay and it's it's interesting to me because this extends from something that we talked about last week and they, they don't get into it too too much explicitly here but that is what is the nature of a person is a person good or bad and Bizarre is clearly making the assumption here that he thinks people at their base, at their core, are good and the only things that are corrupting them are these institutions which need to go. And it's interesting how he posits himself as being this rationalist, almost, I don't want to say centrist because of the connotations it has, but somebody who really, he, he only believes in what he can see. He only believes in what he sees as objective truth, but he is playing on a philosophical assumption for which there is no, I don't think, an objective truth, whether a person is good or bad. It's something that's been debated for literally forever. And I think there's a line in here that really sticks out to me, speaking of going back to last week's reading, where in um, 
notes from underground, you see the unnamed narrator making fun of those who stop at two plus two equals four because mm-hmm. you know that's it's it's simply that and, and nothing more. It's a limiting factor. Here, Bazarov uses the same phrase, not as a defense, but as a as kind of a defense of, I guess you could call it positivist, like positive materialism of like mm-hmm. getting away from ideologies and getting only into like what you can see directly in front of you when he says, what difference does it make when Pavel accuses uh, Bazarov of hating Russia? <laughs> the only good thing about a Russian is that he has a very low opinion of himself. What's important is that two times two equals four. All the rest is nonsense. I feel like writers at this time really like the example of two times two is four. <laughs> it's, it's it's a very uh, controversial point, more so yes, than I would have expected. Yes. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is that we kind of veer away from the pure, as you sometimes learn about in history class, westernizer Slavophile debate, because clearly Pavel has some Slavophilic tendencies in defending you know the Russian institutions uh, in concert with these Western liberal ideologies. And Bazarov doesn't have any particular feeling about that. He kind of wants to burn it all down. He mentions to, to Pavel that all of Moscow was burned down by a candle, which only costs a single kopeck. <laughs> and I, I think that's got interesting because you I got him, <laughs> which is interesting because even though people might have said that this is a bit of a caricaturization and probably to some extent it is, you do see following movements like the Narodnaya Volya which was a student movement which kind of went all across Russia with this kind of goal of getting the peasants to overthrow the system as it was. It's kind of a pre-Marxist socialist movement in uh, Russia, which actually was the was among the groups that uh, att- attempted to assassinate the Tsar and certainly did uh, bring about a campaign of assassinations throughout the nation. And even, fun fact, uh, were one of the groups that helped popularize the modern term terrorist, which was not in vogue up until the kind of 20th century because they declare themselves to be the terrorists you know yeah they uh huh. they would in one famous example some woman assaulted an unjust official but she didn't kill him and she declared herself in front of the crowd to be a terrorist not a murderer and then you know mm. she was tried and she was let off and everyone was like you know justice anyway <laughs> fun little facts about terrorism <laughs> uh, i think the last thing that i have to say on this is the sympathy perhaps that nikolai arkady's dad evokes towards the end of the argument or actually after the argument's done when he's talking with pavel and pavel goes oh, like oh would you look at that those are our heirs those are who's going to be taking over for us and nikolai says well wait a minute we did the same thing to our parents and i did the same exact thing to my mother and i yelled at her and said that we're from two different generations and it's a bitter pill but she had to she had to swallow it and she didn't like that and he's the only one that has any sort of clarity throughout the novel Mm. on that right which is in i guess an important an important aspect yeah definitely he's the only one that seems to want to he he tries to understand what his son is talking about even if he doesn't do it the best perhaps and he's willing to entertain bizarre's ideas certainly even when bizarre directly insults Nikolai about you know his mannerisms he kind of Mm -hmm. takes it to heart and wonders if Bazarov is right about that and maybe you know it is beyond his time and if he should swallow the same bitter pill which he once told his mother that she should swallow about the changing of the generations but yes so that's that is the first major argument and first major note to take from fathers and children the next one is (laughs) Bazarov is just terrible with women oh yeah and has bad opinions about women yep this is when maybe I could start to see people getting angry about call- and calling this a caricature because uh, Bazarov becomes a grade A misogynist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
when he comes to the new town and finds his disciple Sitnikov, uh, Sitnikov tells him, oh, there's this woman you should meet, Kukchina. She's an independent woman. She's a progressive woman. You'll love her. And then he asks uh, Sitnikov, well, is she attractive? And the guy's like, well, not particularly. Why? And, and Bazarov says, well, then why are you bringing this up? What's the, you're <laughs> wasting my time. And then, you know, Sitnikov says, well, she has champagne. And then Bazarov is like, oh, well, why didn't you say that? Perfect. Let's go. <laughs> there's a, a point where they're talking about the idea of educating uh, women and girls in school and he kind of bizarre kind of says eh, that they, they don't need to be educated they don't need to be able to understand and partake in this conversation and at the end of the chapter arkady says why don't you think women should be free thinkers and he says well because as far as i've observed the only female free thinkers are ugly monsters and i was like <laughs> yeah and he does this like directly to women he's talking to like this Kukchina, the free thinker, when he walks in, she's tries, trying to have a conversation with him about some, you know, intellectual thing. And he asks her, do you have any attractive friends? <laughs> Which, oh my God. Wow. What, what a question. What a question to ask a real human being. Hey, he's direct, you know. <laughs> Shooting the shot, potentially. <laughs> in the worst possible way. Yeah, well, then she's like, well, my friend uh, Adintseva, but, you know, she's kind of empty-headed and, you know, no one should be like her. And then he's like, hmm, maybe more people should be like Adintseva. Again, <laughs> to this woman. <laughs> and then Sitnikov gets really into it and declares that no women should be educated. And, you know, he's like, almost he's against women's rights and all that. And mm, mm, good stuff. So uh, that's tough. That's tough. And, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I mean... Until sort of the end of the first part, it's basically bizarre of just talking about how much he likes Adinsova's body and shoulders. And, and, well, he says probably the worst thing. Actually, this is the worst line that he says. What a delectable body. Perfect for the dissecting table. <laughs> that, I hated that one the most. <laughs> Are we sure Bazarov isn't a serial killer? Like, I know he was not intended to be, but that really is... It's like some something I would have expected from like Dexter or Criminal Minds. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they go see Odinseva after the the ball. <laughs> I don't even really like a lot of this chapter. I don't actually find it super interesting. E- even mm-hmm. well, there are some interesting things. There's, for instance, the part where Bazarov is saying to Arkady, "No, Odinseva is not the interesting one. It's her younger sister Katya." And that was after he and Adinsova were actually having like an interesting conversation. And he says, no, Katya's prettier. That's who I would want to date. Or mm-hmm. I don't think he's implying date, actually. Probably not. He's pretty explicit about the fact that he thinks that you, women exist only for sex and that's it. So, yes, I do think it's interesting that uh, the reason why Adinsova invites them initially is because Arkady is kind of showing off Bazarov and says, oh, he's a nihilist. He hates everything. He mm-hmm. respects no authority. And she says, really? That's interesting. Come talk to me about that. And even though she's explicitly asked him to talk about this, and normally he will love to talk about that. He will tell anyone. He just goes, his friend Arkady, he just goes in and starts insulting his whole family over it. Um, he gets afraid and he gets bashful and starts talking about his background as a doctor and what he's studying to do in physics and all that. And he completely avoids the subject and even feels himself getting embarrassed. Yeah, well, I think he's just not used to talking with uh, real women. That's <laughs> what it seems to me. I mean, the fact that he's blushing, that he doesn't, he's never experienced these feelings. He doesn't know how to reconcile his 
feelings with what he thinks he should be feeling, which is nothing. Right. Which I think, I guess maybe, of course, I've not read the second half of this and you have, so maybe you already know something I don't. But of course, he is trying to reject all sorts of feelings like that. That is kind of an institution that he has no respect for. And yet it's still there. He's a human being. He gets overwhelmed in an earlier argument with Pavel and kind of gets angry. And he needs to take a moment to kind of go back into his calm persona. I think that's the same thing you're seeing here in that he is repeatedly being brought face to face with the fact that he himself is human. And when he meets a pretty woman that he likes, he is not willing to be a dick as he is to, you know, women he finds unattractive, which says a lot about who he is as a person, but that's beside the point. And he's kind of not being broken down, but he's being forced to face that more so than I think he previously has been. Yeah, he has this interesting line, I think, when Adinsa was pressing him a little bit and asking what he thinks about people and their differences. And he says, there's no reason to study any one person individually. It would be just as silly if a scientist was to go into a birch forest and study each birch tree individually. There's Mm -hmm. just not that many differences between people. The only differences that can exist are between the like physical state of organs that we all have, which I know what you're thinking. What a good pickup line. <laughs> um, but I didn't, so it doesn't really like that response. And Bazarov, I think he's, he's just having this complete dissonance between what he's saying and what he's actually thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that this relationship is important because he's basically becomes a hypocrite throughout the rest of the novel as you are starting to see he is here and more or less everybody is hypocritical throughout the novel everybody adheres or claims to adhere to these certain ideologies but when not even when push comes to shove when push comes to anything they're ready to just be like yeah never mind which i guess you could maybe say is part of this dynamic of going back to the very title itself fathers and children between the older generation which is self-assured it's had its ideas thrown up against a wall and they've come to a place where they think this is it and they are just willing to stop there and often they do stop there Mm -hmm. and then you have the the children who are still forming their ideas and seeing all around them things that are obviously wrong and even the older generation agrees they're wrong when arkady arrives back at uh, the estate for the first time since he'd gone to college he looks around and notes everything which has gotten worse since he left and he thinks well this obviously needs to be reformed this can't stay the same but Mm -hmm. what is to do and who will do it or what is to be done and who will do it? What is to be done? That is the question. <laughs> it's a phrase you'll see often throughout this book and in Russian literature as a whole. Yep, yep. It's also a, it's also a fun joke. I enjoy that one. I do too. Yeah. If, I guess for those not in the know, uh, what is the phrase in Russian? Deal it? Is that it? I think so. Okay. Yeah, the phrase what is to be done, which is obviously said throughout this book. It was the title of a very famous book by Nicholas Nikolai Chernyshevsky. By Nikolai. By Nikolai Chernyshevsky, which was hugely influential in the Russian radical movement and, of course, perhaps most famously outside of Russia, Vladimir Lenin's What is to be done? Or Stodelats, which is still a common phrase you might say jokingly when no one knows what to do. But you have to have, you have to be with a really niche group of friends, I think. Yeah. To find that funny. (laughs) luckily for you and me and our listeners this is that niche group well it uh, it makes it easier when i only have one friend that i have the podcast with (laughs) (laughs) you're you're making it more efficient yep streamlining yeah (laughs) so that's fathers and children through chapter 16 it might be a little bit unsatisfying because we're obviously leaving you all in the middle of 
kind of an argument here, but that's kind of where we are. We are in the middle of Fathers and Children. We have been set up with many ideas. All the characters have been placed, and we're kind of getting a sense of what they're about to face and what's about to test them, which we will be getting into next week when we finish Fathers and Children. Uh, if you don't have this book, I would recommend you pick it up. Like I said, I've been having a great time so far. I'm glad. Yeah, I, I, I'm having a great time with this novel. It did not take me that long to get to this point. I was probably only reading for a couple hours. So it's a very quick read. All the, all the novels you see which have it in there, um, it's going to look pretty long, but that's because they've got 500 pages of like critical texts in addition to the like 150-something pages the actual book is. That's so right. it's a very like, quick read. Yep, so and we didn't really get to a lot of the fun stuff this time. Not to give too much away, but there is a duel next time, so bring your dueling pistols if you have them. Bring a, a second. That's a very important part of dueling that people often forget. You gotta bring a second. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess insult someone in the coming week. I would and recommend a white glove. It's helpful for throwing down if you don't actually want to hit someone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do it all by handwritten note. Yes, exactly. Obviously. Don't forget, if you're interested, you can find these stickers, which are now selling on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll also be able to find images of what they look like on our Instagram if you're curious or just want to see what's up. Now, Cameron, before we totally wrap up here, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I am probably at a one to two. Uh, unfortunately, I have to be at work tomorrow morning, so I figured <sighs> I should probably uh be sober and do my laundry so i don't show up with cat hair on my pants uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> that's just like uh, i didn't think you're okay i didn't know where you're going what? with that <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what about you where <laughs> i probably like uh five ish i i feel nice okay. and warm like i could go take a dip in a river and look for some frogs like bizarre you know, that's good. That's that's a good uh, tendency to have. Get out of the city, maybe. Maybe enjoy yeah. um, some of the surrounding areas that uh, your area has to provide. Right into Lake Michigan, get some frogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't drown because we have a podcast to record next week. Ah, good point. Uh, that's my main concern here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> until next time, the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you enjoyed the episode, well, first of all, that makes us happy, but also grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you happen to have a few dollars to spare, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. It'll help us buy the books we'll be reading in the future. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or visit our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>